All right, good morning. We're uh, in week four or five this morning uh, from the series Alive and, and Really Living. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is a little bit of a departure from what has been our pattern for a bit of working book by book through the text uh, of the Bible. And so these five weeks have centered around John 10.10, where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. And I have come that you may have life abundantly. And so we just want to ask ourselves each week with a different nuance, a different focus, a different emphasis, is that what I have or have I settled for something less? Have I settled for something less? This morning, uh, our topic is, is real life. And so real life implies that a fake life is somehow possible. Uh, that's not what I have in mind, but maybe you've seen The Truman Show. Anybody? It's old, but... Uh, Truman Show came out in 1998, and Jim Carrey was the lead actor, and I know that many people don't care for for him all that much, but his Ace Ventura and those movies uh, were truly the movies of my childhood, uh, and so he has a warm spot in my heart. But the Truman Show was, was basically uh, this film that captured an idea that a, a young child, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, was adopted by a corporation uh, at birth. And he was essentially put into this giant dome or bubble, and they created an entire world. Think about Disneyland in a bubble. They created an entire world, 5,000 cameras all throughout this world, every person in his life, mother, father, uh, eventually the person that he marries, everyone in town, in this town, in this community is an actor or an actress. And so this is reality TV before reality TV starts. And so... The film is called The Truman Show, and the TV show that is this reality show about his life uh, really captures most of the plot, and occasionally it breaks out of the show to show you audiences around the country sitting in restaurants or bars or living rooms watching, saying, what's he going to do next? Who's he going to marry? Where's he going to go to school? What's he going to do? The d- emotions of decisions and the weight of of life unfolding right before their eyes. And so the actors and the actresses are filmed sort of off script, uh, sharing essentially advertisements with the the audience. And and they say things that the wife of of Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, says, "Everything, everything is real in his life. This is my life. One of his best friend's in the reality show, says everything that you're watching on TV is real. Every emotion, every reaction, every interaction, everything he does is real. And he says, but there's one caveat. It's controlled. And so the producers coordinate and orchestrate everything to keep him on this fictitious island, in this fictitious world, uh, with so much detail even that his father, also an actor, uh, they stage his accidental death by drowning at the beginning of Truman's life to psychologically impair him, to keep him on the island. So it's, it's twisted. But they say everything is real, it's just controlled. And so as we talk about real life today, I just want to suggest to us that life without God is still real. Relationships still real. Pain, suffering, highs, lows, still real, but life without God is controlled because we're enslaved 
to our sin. We're enslaved to ourself. We're enslaved to our fragile egos. We're enslaved to our frail identities. It's all, it's all still real, but it's controlled. The take-home truth this morning is simply that only Jesus can set us free to experience true life now. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 1. Romans chapter 8, it's page 944 in the little black Bible that's underneath you or behind you or next to you or somewhere within arm's reach, page 944. We're going to start with verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. Uh, And the first point today is simply no condemnation means that God has gifted us a clear conscience. A part of the set free life that God made available to us is that he gifted us a clear conscience. Let's read verses, or just verse 1 from chapter 8. Paul writing here, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To say that there's no condemnation presupposes that at one time there was condemnation. Or at one time, Paul's audience and our lives as well were under judgment or condemnation. And so so we've got to go back to the gospel like we've done each week in this series. We've got to go back. What, What is the good news? Simply that there is an all powerful, almighty, infinite, and good God who made us, made all this and that you and I, every single one of us, have in the past or currently are, have belittled his name, are belittling his name by questioning his authority, by not giving him glory, by not recognizing him for the things that he's done for us and given to us. We think our ways are better than his, and so we've all belittled his name. And God, infinite good, creator of the universe, is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. And so God, not being able to spare wrath, he's just, he's not able to spare wrath, sends Jesus in the flesh to earth and crushes him on the cross. And so the wrath of God that was directed towards us because of our sin is poured out on Jesus, and then God raises Jesus from the dead, and the same power that was at work to raise Jesus from the dead is now at work in the lives of those of us who believe. So that's the good news. That's the gospel. The idea that there was at one time condemnation recognize our posture before we make the decision to follow Jesus. Uh, Turn with me a few pages over. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John 1.9 is not, not altogether different. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So both verses, the entirety of Scripture, the need for Jesus to to come, the mountains of evidence that we have that a real person named Jesus did come, did live, was killed by the Romans and religious leaders, did rise again, reinforces that we are, aside from him, lost spiritually, physically, 
dead, separated from our purpose, separated from our maker, confused about our reason for being. And that's just in this life. And we're deserving of eternal separation from Him forever and ever and ever in a place called hell. A place of torment. A place, Matthew 25, 41 says, was created for the devil and for the angels that follow Him. It wasn't created for us. It was created for the devil and the angels that followed Him. Verse 1 today says that a summary of Paul's arguments to date in the book of Romans shows that there is now no condemnation. That the power of sin over us, uh, God's power to save us, are real. And so, when we talk about sin, and the study of sin is a, is a fancy long word called homardiology and salvation, soteriology. When we start getting into theology, uh, sometimes our, our eyes kind of go back in our heads a little bit, and we think, you know, clue me back in when it's relevant. Uh, some of you like books of useless facts. Nicole loves books of useless facts. I, they drive me crazy. I think they're great kindling to start fires. Um, but, but she loves them. Uh, so I'll give you three useless facts just to, to flush it out a bit. Um, did you know that when American car horns honk, they honk in the key of F? Useless. Every time you lick a stamp, you consume one-tenth of a calorie. Useless. Uh, to escape the grip of a crocodile's jaws, push your thumbs into its eyeballs. It will let you go immediately. Not as useless, but mostly useless. Probably true of a person who's grabbed you as well. But the problem is that some of us, some of us treat theology, some of us look at theology like I look at books of useless facts. It's irrelevant. What does it mean to me today? Like, what can I actually do with that? And so we just want to kind of explore this idea of what does it mean that there's now no condemnation? That's a long word. What does it mean that there's now no condemnation? One, in Christ you don't have to be defined by your past because your debt has been paid. Does it mean that there's not consequences for your past decisions? It just means that God doesn't define you and confine you. He doesn't define you and He doesn't confine you to them. It doesn't matter who you've wronged, what you've done, or how often you did it. No condemnation means that we are gifted a clear conscience. What would your life look like? How would it be different if you had a clear conscience before God and others? How would that change the way that you interact with people? How would that change the way that you relate to God? No condemnation means that we're gifted a clear conscience. No condemnation also means that we are invited to live as ones who are actually free, ones who are actually innocent, not guilty. How do guilty people act? I tell you how my kids act when they're guilty, right? Hide, kind of, kind of mousy, kind of timid. When we're when we're guilty, we feel unworthy wherever we're at, right? Uh, we don't want to talk about our shortcomings when we know we're in the wrong. We don't want to talk about it. Some of us feel like we've flunked out of serving God uh, in any any useful way. Uh, no condemnation means that we are free to live as ones who are innocent. To approach God like a, a student coming home at Christmas to see family, maybe from college far away, not 
like a, a wayward child approaching mother or father uh, asking for money. We get, we're invited, we're gifted, a clear conscience, we are invited, we are gifted to live as ones who are actually innocent. Last, no condemnation means we can stop trying to earn God's approval. We can stop trying to earn God's approval. We don't have to wake up every day with this mindset of, I've got to prove worthy of his past goodness to me and do something to earn his continued favor. Don't have to live that way. We're meaningful because God has called us his, because we're heirs of the king, not because of our productivity as human beings in any sphere of life, not because of the amount of good things that we do, the amount of volunteering, the amount of generosity, it doesn't matter what it is, it's because of the cross of Christ. Not because of the good things we might do or might want to do. This means we get to serve the Lord out of joy, not obligation. This means we get to serve as the Spirit leads, not under compulsion from others, expectations put upon us. Uh, We get to serve with healthy boundaries. No condemnation means we don't have to white-knuckle it and daily to earn God's favor, fearful that at any moment we'll blow it and he'll zap us. Don't some of us feel that way? Don't maybe all of us at some time feel that way? If it's been a rough stretch for you, I better get this stuff in order. God's going to wreck my car, take my health, take my job. We're going to lose our house. Something's going to happen. We're going to get a tax bill that's three times the size. Maybe you got a tax bill that is three times the size. And your first thought was, what did I do? There must be something buried. God's getting me for something. No condemnation means we, we get to live with a clear conscience in Christ. We get to live as ones who are actually, truly innocent. We just don't have to earn his favor. We don't have to work daily to earn his favor. I, I want to pause because I, I, I do think it's more prevalent than, than what we realize. And it was sort of laid out for me over the last two weeks. Uh, I was asked to do a project, sort of an introspective project, and chart out a week or two of uh, time, hour by hour, and essentially say, what did I do with that block of time? What was I hoping to achieve? Or what return was I hoping to get? And what does that say about my priorities? And so as I set about to chart out and, and chronicle what I was doing, um, I selected a couple of weeks that were exceptionally busy, thinking, well, when you're busy, you're going to hunker down and do whatever is most important. Uh, after analyzing my schedule and, and what I did, uh, my takeaways uh, were, were pretty straightforward. What dominated my schedule? Work and kids. What was noticeably absent? Meaningful time with my wife. Meaningful time with the Lord. Here's a couple takeaways uh, from that process uh, as I asked the Lord to, to make things clear. Um, one, being successful or, view, or viewed as successful means more to me than it should if I find my identity in Jesus. If there's really no condemnation in Jesus, if I'm really set free, if I'm really innocent, if I'm really loved for who I am, not because of what I can do, then being successful or being viewed as success is way too important to me. Second, my definition of success has been radically skewed by my own sin such that work and kids have become a bigger priorities than my own time with my Lord, with my own time with my wife and my own time with the Lord, which I would suggest to you are a complete flip-flop of how the Spirit will direct and lead us. 
Third, there is in my heart a sinful desire to make good things in my life, even good gifts from the Lord, opportunities to point to myself and say, look what I've done. So there is a propensity in my heart, a sinful propensity in my heart to take the good things the Lord has given to me, the good things the Lord has done, and try to use those things to create evidence that points back and says, look what I did. No condemnation means we get to start walking in freedom. We get to start walking in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. We don't have to earn or prove anything. We get a clear conscience. This gives us freedom to be human. This gives us freedom to rest. It gives us freedom even to fail. Second, no condemnation means God has gifted us a full pardon. First point, for you note-takers, God has gifted us a clear conscience. No condemnation means God has gifted us a clear conscience. Second, no condemnation means God has gifted us a full pardon. Let's look at verses 2, 3, and 4 of Romans 8. 2, 3, and 4. It's back to page 944 if you're keeping track. Picking up from one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The reason that we can have a clear conscience, the reason that a full pardon is available to us is because God sent Jesus to do what the law couldn't do because it was weakened by our sinful flesh. And Jesus, who was sinless, paid our penalty, absorbed our wrath, purchased what we could not buy for ourselves to give us a full pardon. The law of sin and death is this condition that we found ourselves before God. Think about that time in your life. What were the defining aspects of of living for you? Wasn't it this sense of how do I make sense of life that is not in line with what God has? How do do I make sense of this? And so we try anything we can think of. Uh, Relationships, work, anything to, to find that validation, that affirmation, that what we're doing is meaningful, that we're meaningful, that what we're doing uh, has value. It's effort, it's failure, it's guilt, and it's repeat, right? It's effort, and it's failure, and it's guilt, and it's repeat. The law of sin and death means that we're driving over a cliff, and we think that's a good way to go. We're driving over a cliff, we think it's a good way to go, and even when we go over the cliff, we point the finger at somebody else. The law of sin and death is this downward Spiral, this condition that we find ourselves in, separated from God in this life, separated from our maker, from our purpose, from our reason for being. It is both sin and death now, and it is sin and death forever and ever and ever when our actual physical death takes place. The law of sin and death means we pursue bad things thinking they're good. 
The law of sin and death means we react selfishly over and over, but until God opens our eyes, always point the finger at others and never ourselves. It is heavy. It is binding. It is suffocating. Uh, flip back to Romans 7. I want to read verse 11. Because the law is not inherently evil. Listen to what Paul says. He says, what shall we say then? Was the law sin? And he says, no, no, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. The most gentle thing that the Lord can do, we've said this a few times in this series, the most gentle thing that the Lord can do is to allow parts of our life to crumble so that we discover that we can't make life work without him. The most gentle thing that he can do is to allow our hidden sin to come into the light so we discover that we can't make this work without him. The most gentle thing that he can do is to allow pain and suffering into our life to show us these things so that he can invite us into the life of being set free, of truly alive, of life and peace with him. On Easter, we we talked about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And you remember that he didn't ignore Mary's woundedness. He didn't run away from Thomas's doubt. He didn't abandon his followers in their confusion and their frustration and their fear. He didn't even abandon the crowds and these people that are so far away from him. And so, so what we saw was God saw all those people and their different circumstances and conditions and sends Jesus to them. And so God sees us, all of our different paths, all of the different ways that we've tried to cope with things, all of our efforts to make a good show of it, a good go of it. And God sends Jesus to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law that we couldn't. We weakened it because of our sin. God says, I see you and does something about it. God says, I see you and does something about it. Uh, who gets this full pardon? Verse 4 says this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but those who walk according to the Spirit. This takes us to our third point, our final point this morning. No condemnation means that God has gifted us an empowered life. No condemnation, from verse 1, means that life that is fully alive, that is set free in Jesus, is an empowered life, a Holy Spirit-empowered life. Uh, Let's continue in the text. We'll read 5 through 11 together. Here's what Paul says. For the flesh, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, okay? Both death now and forever. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, both life and peace now and perfectly forever upon our physical death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. Verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, verse 9, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. One of the things that I want you just to see as we constantly bounce back and forth between those is that that life has this pass-fail, in-or-out, black-or-white quality to it. We either are aligned with the Spirit, following Jesus, or we're aligned with the flesh, serving ourselves, promoting ourselves, protecting ourselves, obsessing over our own wants and our own needs and what's fair and what we deserve. Paul says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, that it cannot please him, but the life that is set on the spirit is life and peace now and forever. Paul's going to flesh this out a little bit in Galatians 5. Turn over there if if you have your Bibles. I want you to see some of what he uh, writes later to to describe this this conflict or these two different pathways, these two different positions in the flesh or in the spirit. Galatians 5. We'll start in verse 19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, these are the things, if you're in the flesh, your mind lingers on. These are the things that define you. These are the things you're enslaved to. These are the things you long for. These are the things you find yourself craving. These are the things you find yourself desiring. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, just just to pause, that's in part why it's troubling when you find yourself dismissing your own sin or belittling it. It's not really that bad. It's not that big of a thing. It's because we fail to grasp the text of Scripture from cover to cover that says, no, no, it is a bad thing. And if this is a pattern in your life, this is reason for concern. If this is a pattern in your life, there should be a red flag going off. Paul continues. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucify the flesh doesn't mean that you have mastery over every struggle in your life. It doesn't mean that you have mastery over every sin or deviance that has been a challenge or an obstacle. But it means you're not enslaved to them. It means you're not bound to them. It means that they don't have mastery over you anymore. You've been set free from that. The point again is not to say fit of rage I think was mentioned in there. The point is not to say that if at one time you had a fit of rage you better watch out. You're probably headed straight to hell. 
The point is to say that if these things describe you, define you, if these things have mastery over you, that's cause for concern. Uh, Matthew 7 is, is a passage uh, I've read a few times. Uh, this is where they, they come to Jesus, and, and Jesus is drawing their attention that some who are there, some who are in the crowds, some who claim to be following him are inauthentic in their worship. And he says, some of these people are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, look at all we've done. Now I'm paraphrasing. We were at church. We put money in the offering. We were at church actually three out of four Sundays, most months. Helped in children's ministry. I mean, (laughs) come on. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a heavy, that's a, a heavy thing to consider that some will face Jesus on Judgment Day thinking they've got their name tag and their badge and they're headed into paradise and will discover that they have deceived themselves and they will not enter his rest. That is a heavy passage for us to consider. And and so I might say, uh, to bring it into maybe areas uh, that are, are tangible for us, if your pattern in marriage is what's in it for me, not how do I fulfill my God-given worshipful role to love my husband, love my wife as I'm commanded to. If your pattern is what's in it for me that is cause for concern. As you think about your career, as you think about your finances, as you think about the things that you put your hands to and invest time and energy to, if it's about what I want, if it's about what I deserve, if it's about what I like, and it's not a thoughtful and worshipful response a thoughtful and worshipful desire to be led by the Spirit, a thoughtful and worshipful and intentional desire to follow the path that God has put for us, that is a cause for concern. If our pattern is it's all about me, that is cause for Matthew 7. Concern. Jesus said a tree would be known by its fruit. It's either going to be rotten or it's going to be delicious. And so we, we've got to ask ourselves, it's a healthy thing for us to do regularly to ask ourselves, am I rotten or am I delicious? You don't have to answer that right now. You know, uh, politicians are not well regarded in culture. Gallup did a, a study 15 years ago, which means I can't even imagine what the results would be now, but of all of the different jobs listed, and I think there were 22, congressmen and congresswomen were number 21 on the list of uh, respectability and trustworthiness. So the last on the list, I think, was a car salesman. So I apologize. If any of you are car salesmen, they weren't talking about you. They were talking about other car salesmen. Um, the point of the study was that the, the non-ruling class in America believes its leaders are supposed to represent them. We believe our congressmen, our congresswomen, our senators, our governor, they're supposed to represent their constituents. They're supposed to represent us. And the general consensus among the population is that my representatives don't represent me. They're not doing their job. And so that gets us upset. And so you'll see slogans like, drain the swamp, right? Which implies that all of politics, all politicians are are more or less the equivalent of pawn scum and should just all be discarded because they're not doing their job. 
They're supposed to represent me, and they're not doing their job. And so, as we consider what it means to to walk according to the flesh, I, I, I might say that there's a chance that there's some hypocrisy in our hearts because our job is to represent Jesus, right? Our job is to be first and foremost concerned with him and his kingdom here on earth and and his will for our life. And and so it's interesting that we can very quickly condemn someone who is not representing us as we think we should and feel no guilt or shame at all if we're not representing Jesus who we've professed, uh, we've said Jesus is number one. I'm all about I'm living for eternity. I know my purpose. Again, if our pattern is all about ourselves, all about what I want, what do I deserve, what is fair to me, there's cause for Matthew 7 concern. Matthew 6 uh, backs up even a bit from that, and uh, it's kind of neat. Or Sorry, 16. Uh, You might remember this story. Uh, Peter and Jesus, and Jesus and the disciples are interacting, and Jesus is telling them what's going to happen to him. He's going to die, and this and that. And Peter gets in his face. Right? Brash Peter. Peter's great because Peter is just illustration after illustration for us. Uh, But Peter gets in his face in Matthew 16 and says, no way, that's not happening, Jesus, over my dead body. Maybe you've underestimated, Jesus, what you have when I'm by your side. I will not let this happen. Some of you know what, what Jesus says to Peter. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23 of Matthew 16 says this, but he, being Jesus, turned And said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter's motivations don't seem all that bad. Hey, Jesus, I love you. I'd like to protect you. I like what we've got going. This is a really good thing. If you haven't noticed, people are following. Let's keep moving. But he turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. You are not walking according to the Spirit, but you are thinking according to the flesh. Right? Peter looks around and he says, I think I know what should happen. Jesus is like, you don't know what should happen. Peter says, I can take care of this. Jesus says, you, you can't take care of this. Peter says, I got a five-year plan. You dying is not part of my five-year plan. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what your five-year plan is, Peter. I've got a plan. And so we see, even in Peter's love for his Savior, even with Peter's good intentions, it is so easily, it's so easy for us to flip that switch and turn from looking at life from God's vantage point uh, of desiring to be led by the Spirit daily becoming hyper-pragmatic, to becoming people who, who make decisions with simply pros and cons and what makes the most sense to us. What, is, what does good wisdom say? And so we're not against wisdom ever, but we want to follow Jesus. We want to be led by his spirit. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. So to be found in the flesh, well, what, is that? what does that look like? Um, you, you can kind of see from some of the texts that we've looked at and one of the ways that I I was just thinking about it this week is uh, there are some parallels with a 
uh, rebellious teenager in the sense the rebellious teenager bucks at their parents' authority, bucks at their parents' rules. And then that, that rebellious teenager tends to discover that as they buck at their parents' rules and buck at their parents' authority, there's consequences and there's strained relationships. And as they continue with the strained relationships and the consequences, they find that, that life be, becomes difficult. Things that they once were pursuing that were meaningful and good become distant and become further away f- from reality. To be found in the, in the, in the flesh uh, is like that in the sense that it's not just future death when we die, being separated from God, but it's death in the now and the present. It's to be physically alive but spiritually dead. It's to be physically alive and maybe very productive at work, but to be spiritually dead. It's to be physically alive, maybe have a family that on the outside everything looks good, but to be spiritually dead and to be eroding and to be rotting from the inside out. In contrast, Paul says the life of the Spirit is filled with life and peace. And so sometimes we we see life and peace and we think, yes, I know, heaven, life and peace. I'm going to float on a cloud. I'm going to have wings. We're all going to be singing. I don't really like to sing even on Sundays, but I guess we're going to be singing for eternity. That sounds great. Paul says it's life and peace now. We cannot have life and peace now without Jesus. We cannot have life and peace with ourselves or with others if it's not preceded by life and peace with Jesus. You know, the Truman Show ends with uh, Truman discovering that he's trapped in this bubble. And so throughout the movie, different characters who have been in there the whole time with him, they, they break character and they have become convinced that the producers of the show are, are evil and that this is a horrible thing to do to a person. And so they'll try to get him off camera and explain what happens. And, and this happens a couple times in the movie. And as soon as someone breaks character... Uh, you see, uh, men in suits come and they, they drag that person offset. They drag that person out of this fictitious land. And the show ends, spoiler, uh, with him getting out and, and discovering that that controlled life is no life at all. Even though everything in there was real from his vantage point. His, his marriage, his relationships, his work, his emotions... The people around him, everything was real, but that he discovers that even that controlled life, that that is no way to live. And so I guess my, my question as we wrap up this morning is, do you have that real life? Are you able to take hold of what is gifted to us, this clear conscience, this full pardon, this empowered life, or have you settled for something less than that? Or are you maybe on the other side of that coin and you're still aligned with the flesh, the things that you daydream about, the things that you obsess over. If you look back over the course of your weeks and your months and years, the ways that you make decisions, your priorities, the way that you've treated people, it all revolves around you. My prayer that would be if that's you today that we might get to have a conversation, that you'd have a conversation with the Lord saying, I don't want that anymore. It's not working and that maybe the Holy Spirit has put it on your heart this morning to do something about that and, and to make that choice to follow Jesus, to, to repent as Romans 10 and, and 1 John talk about and, and follow Jesus, uh, but that you would know that this is available to you because it's available to all of us because it's not contingent upon what we've done or what we are doing or what we will do in the future. It's our response to Jesus who has made this available. 
our new life comes to us vicariously. In other words, we didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We can't claim it. We can't take credit for it. We can't demean others for not having it. It was done by Jesus, who was sent by God, and it is gifted to us if we will receive. If you're here this morning and you have not received, I'll be down here after the service. Mark on your little, there's a communication card somewhere around you, uh, maybe in a bulletin or in a seat back. Right on there, say yes to Jesus, or I want to know more about this, or I have questions, but I'm curious. No one will show up at your house tomorrow. There won't be a team of people that come and and knock on your door at 6 a.m. and say, let's talk. I might give you a phone call or a text or an email if you say, please don't ever call me, but you can send me an email and we'll start there. Matthew 7 is a heavy and a weighty concern. And it's something that we all want to go before the Lord and say, honestly, authentically, introspectively, am I walking and living in the manner that I have been called to, or am I aligned with the flesh? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are so patient with us. Lord, you know everything about us, and you don't run from us. You run to us. You know everything that we've done, and and maybe even worse, everything that we're going to do. You don't run from us. You run to us. And so, Lord, we ask your Spirit to do what your Spirit does, where our the eyes, our spiritual eyes are opened to see ourselves for who we truly are, not because you have any intention of crushing us with that knowledge or that awareness, but, Lord, that you're, you're trying to knock on our heart's door. You're trying to say, come on, open up, let's go. I've got something so much better. Lord, open our eyes to that better. Open our eyes, Lord, to what it looks like to walk in the freedom of a clear conscience, of a full pardon, invited and gifted to an empowered life. Lord, I pray that we would honestly come before you and say, Lord, am I alive and fully living, or have I settled for something less than? Lord, by your Spirit, put your finger on our less than and open our eyes to the truth that you've invited to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.